Hello, Jack. Hello, Andy. How are you? Very well. Now, what's been going on with you in the last few days? I've been to Denmark. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. What are you doing in Denmark? I went to Lara's cousin's wedding. Right. Lara's my girlfriend, and it was really fun. Mad weather. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, what was the highlight of the Danish wedding? Uh, the Danish traditions. Such as? Such as when the bride leaves to go to the loo, right. all the women in the around the dinner go and kiss the groom on the cheek and the same the other way around. Um, it was That's mad. It was Does, is that adhered to throughout the entire day and night of the wedding? It was throughout the whole meal, yeah. Right, only for the meal? The meal. Okay. And there was another meal-based tradition, which was the um, if the guests start like clinking all their cutlery, yeah. then uh, the bride and groom have to stand on their chairs and kiss above the table. And then if all the guests start stamping their feet, the bride and groom have to kiss under the table. It sounds like a drinking game. <laughs> well, it kind of... Does everyone keep up? I think I'd get lost and confused. It did get a bit I wouldn't raucous. know who'd gone to the loo and who I had to kiss. There was a, po- there was a couple of points where... People were doing it too much, and people were like, right. no, "Stop! Don't do it again. It's too, it's too embarrassing." Good grief! Um, sounds sounds like a very stressful but joyous weekend. It was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been watching the World Cup mostly, and enjoying the sunshine. Yeah, I haven't done any travelling. Sorry, you, you've you've been travelling in your mind. I've been travelling in my mind on stage, but we're not here to talk about me um, because I'm not interesting. Um, so. Hello and welcome to Bristol Prologue. This is a new, brand new, exciting podcast. And this is episode one, uh, Bristol Prologue, the podcast where we meet and greet and chat to artists, theatre makers, performers, directors, writers, producers, etc., etc., working in Bristol and beyond into the southwest. And I'm very pleased to say, you can see me now as I look over the top of my microphone, that we are joined by Hannah Drake and Justin Palmer. Hello, Hannah and Justin. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you both on this fine sunny day? Yeah, really well, thanks. Yeah, very well. Very, very happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us, taking time out of your busy, mm. busy schedules. As we know, of course, Hannah and Justin, co-founders of Insane Root Theatre Company, are right up against it, bang smack in the middle of a <laughs> mega production at the moment. Um, ha- well done for finding a, an hour or two to come and chat to us. It's okay. We've uh, we've kind of moved a few things around in our very very busy life. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should feel privileged. So I suppose we'll get on to Insane Root, of course, later, um, and find out all about Romeo and Juliet mm. and what came before it and what might come after it. Mm-hmm. But first of all, my first question, Hannah. Mm. Theatre always, director always. What's the story there? How did you find yourself in the industry? Oh, Lord. Um, so I, I don't come from a theatre family at all. Uh, my dad's an engineer, my brother's an accountant, uh, and my mum, she was essentially a secretary. But she was really passionate about theatre. And she used to tell me about when she did follow spotting for amateur shows. Uh, so uh, when I was a little kid, she would take me to weekend morning performances at the local theatres. And there was something just about walking into a sort of a dark atmospheric room where someone under a bright light would tell you a story that kind of got me really excited about this this world that you could be part of. And then sort of quite classically, I did a lot of acting at school uh, because I didn't know there were other things you could do. I didn't know there was set design or yeah, directing or whatever. Um, and then it was kind of uh, towards my late teens where I suddenly realised how much of a control freak I am <laughs> and that I wanted to be in charge <laughs> and, and tell me what to do. Uh, and then I actually started directing at university. So it was kind of a, a long process to discover that. And even at uni, I didn't uh, settle on directing. I didn't study it uh, at uni. Uh, but when I left, uh, I was kind of in a quandary about wanting to work in theatre, having no connections, not knowing what to do or how to get into it, and missing uh, directing quite badly. So I looked into sort of training courses and I got into the Bristol Bit Theatre School. Right. Uh, and I think if I hadn't done that, I'm not sure I would still be in the industry now. So that was a really kind of critical gateway point for me. 
Okay, so that it was a, a logical thing then and, and a landmark moment then to go on to Bristol Old Vic. Yeah, and also I think because I, I grew up in Bristol, the third school was always one that you kind of think that's that's the place I want to go. Yeah. You kind of idealise it quite a lot. So I didn't really look into many other directing courses. I knew I wanted to stay in the southwest. I'd already done university, didn't have a lot of money, couldn't afford to go to London. Um, but it was a really competitive course. You only take four people a year. And, uh, yeah, I managed to get in. And it was four terms. Uh, it's taught me quite a lot about process. Uh, it meant that I've met some really important um, actors and connections, people I still work with now. Uh, and has actually been one of my most consistent employers. <laughs> so well, that's quite it's the way it goes, isn't it? You know, those <laughs> connections that you make early on in the industry yeah. often then form your sort of theatrical family tree. Yeah, absolutely. People that you collaborate with time and time again. So are there a, a few key people from that era that you, you're still working with now? Yeah, there's a few actors that I both stay in touch with because we're friends, but also have worked with several times over the years. And I think when you graduate with people, you kind of, you create your first companies together mm. and that's kind of your your training ground um and it was actually working with a stage management student who just graduated who was producing then that i then ended up meeting justin uh, okay because we worked together segueing beautifully there I know. for me yeah. um so <laughs> oh. justin i've obviously known you for for quite a long time now mm. um you know i was just an innocent 18-year-old student. <laughs> Here was Justin, this 21-year-old, yes. fully-fledged man. Young university. buck. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I met you then back in 2002, I think it was, mm -hmm. and you were very much, in my mind then, you kind of knew you wanted to be an actor. You'd done a year at East 15. Yep. Um, and then decided to go back to university. But um, had you kind of... You were firmly... This is it. I want to be an actor, and this is. I'm just going to change my route into it. And had it. And how long had you had that that ambition and that aspiration? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I wanted to be an actor still when I went to university. I just wanted to, to delay it because I I went to East 15 and I was 18. Well, just 18. Went to London and it was a uh, coming from Plymouth, which is <laughs> like a, a a tiny village compared to London and also the kind of. Um, expense of London it was quite a shock and also dealing with the amount of people on my course that were very much with their elbows out and um wanting to 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 get far and you know lots of actors are very ambitious and that's you need to have that drive to you and it, it felt kind of very cutthroat when I got there it's a very nice campus um and it's right for some people, but it, it didn't feel right for me. Mm. And also not the right time. It was mainly because of the right time. I did a year and I was possibly going to go back into the second year, but defer a year. But I thought, I, I'm interested in other things. I, I, I want to direct. I want to write. I want to make mm. theatre. Mm. Um, and I want to be able to drive as well. So yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to have more skills rather than graduating at 21 and still feeling like I was 18, Yeah, I, I suppose, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bold decision, though, to take yourself out, out of a course that presumably you must have wanted really badly at the time yeah. to get into. Yeah, I, I wanted... Uh, yeah, I, for years before that, I'd, I'd wanted to go to drama school. I'd done youth theatre in... Theatre Royal Plymouth, which has got a fantastic young company. Yeah, can, um, I, can I ask you a little bit about that then? So how much of yeah. a formative process was that? What, what, what kind of tricks and or things <laughs> not to do did you yeah. learn? Um, yeah, I learnt, I learnt a lot about how um, being a good company member is pretty much 50% half of, half of being an actor and having a positive attitude as, as well as um, having all of the, the technical skills. Um, and that it was just a great time. You have such a great time, and the camaraderie you build up with the cast mm. is just—it's one of the most enjoyable things about working theatre. And you build your sort of theatrical family tree back then as well. Yeah, lots of connections that you've maintained. Yeah, there's still lots of lots of my friends who are actors or in the industry um, who I know from Pl Plymouth Youth Theatre, from the Theatre Royal Plymouth, um, still still acting. And yeah, so I've not had a chance to work with many of them, but um, it's been kind of great to sort of keep in touch and sort of share war stories yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah it was it was very formative um you, you do kind of learn um some bad habits and then have to have that kind of yeah taken yeah. out of, of course your you don't know that when you're young do you exactly you just think that this is how everything's done yeah so 
that leads me nicely into my question for Hannah. Mm-hmm. So, Hannah, you're studying directing at Bristol Vic. Mm. How much of a sense did you have of what a director is and how you specifically wanted to direct before the course? And Ooh. did that align with your expectations? Or did you go in kind of thinking, hey, I'm a blank canvas. <laughs> These great masters are going to show me every trick in the book. Oh, uh, a bit of both. Okay, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's uh, good. <laughs> I think... I think uh, Everything I knew about directing, I knew from being directed. Right. Uh, and, I mean, Justin talks about the youth theatre in Plymouth. I remember doing um, the summer schools at the Bristol Vic, and that was the first time I met people like Sally Cookson. Um, you know, and we were doing prototype versions of shows. They then ended up making it at a tobacco factory. It was really exciting to see that journey. Um, so you kind of, you, you pick up a palette of techniques directorially, uh, and everything is very instinctual after that you sort of there's a a classic thing you're a director when when you say you are one and people follow you and that's how you sort of find your style um so I think I I went in with an idea of of the kind of work I wanted to make and and how maybe to work with actors but the, the really great thing about training and being in that environment which is very vocational very practical is that you you learn how actors are being trained today and and Mm how they work and also how stage management are being trained and how you're supposed to work with those people uh so it's it's the professionalization of what you kind of already have an instinct for Mm. um but what i think is quite interesting because i the process of training was very much you would assist on projects you direct little projects of your own but through assisting it's kind of you learn again what what not to do Uh or what you don't want to do because you sort of think, do you know what? I'm not a director who's going to sit down and, and action every line because it's a technique that I, it it (laughs) destroys my brain. So the idea of doing that in a rehearsal room, I mean, for people who don't know what actioning is, it's when you take a line, uh, this is very crude description and you apply an active verb to it. So you're saying that line and you're trying to slap someone, you know, with that line. So it can be really useful when you hear a problem, but the idea, like Max Stafford Clark, quite famously, will action an entire play. Oh. I'm just, um, I'd rather get it up on its feet and it's, start doing yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a bit prescriptive. <laughs> it's really prescriptive. And it doesn't. I think it kind of constrains you a bit, and and, yeah. and, it, and a lot of the best actors do it intuitively anyway. So yeah. it's kind of it's kind of a bit a bit pointless. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's, I mean, a, it's a tool, isn't it? It's something yeah. you can fall back on and you can experiment yes. with 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 clear yeah. choices. And it works for some people. Really yeah, well. and then you yes. can find something a bit more organic yeah. from having done that. But I think the, the big thing I've learned about being a director at Bristol Vic, but also probably more since, because you work with such a diverse range of people, is that actually you have to be a slightly different director for every person you work of with. Of course, yeah. You have to um, you know, be malleable to them. And, and it's about trying to bring out the best in other people, I think. And, and I like what Justin was saying about um, the collaborative nature of, of the work. And, I mean, I kind of subscribe to the idea of ensemble and collaboration far more than... Um, I don't even know what the opposite of it would be. Because my puppets. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moved my over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that was very much something I got from the theatre school as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a mixture of a bit of a blank canvas. but yeah. Um, so you, you finish your training. Mm. What's it like then trying to get work straight away and... Gosh. It's terrifying. It, exactly. It's impossible yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a way. I think... Because from a directing point of view, there are certain schemes that are quite famous. There's a regional theatre young director scheme. There's assisting at major theatres. But to be honest, no one really cares Mm. what you do in training. It's a bit like with actors. When Mm. you say, I did these roles in training, well, great, but you were in a training institution. Mm. Um, So you're you're not necessarily going to have played Hamlet because you were the best person for Hamlet. It's because you were the best person for Hamlet in that year at that time. Um, So it's all about what you do next. And I was really fortunate that um, I had a really good uh, team for my final show and we decided to transfer it to London to get a bit of exposure. And as I mentioned, um, the guy who was producing the show that I did with Justin... To get that, I'd pitched the tobacco factory. They had a, a slot in their brewery that was free and the play that we pitched got selected. So I had an immediate thing to go straight into. 
But what I didn't learn at the theatre school, and I think partly because you can't teach it, is how to really get work made mm. without a company, without a producer. Mm. Or, and, and that's really hard. And actually, I mean, I've been doing this for eight years now, and we've been working together as Insane Root for about three and a half. Mm. Uh, and it's it's kind of taking up this much time to try and be recognised as a director, to be asked to do things. Mm. But there's just so many of us as well. Yeah, so it, exactly. it's, it's You've got to be sort of lucky, tenacious, have an idea of what you want to make and have contacts and just be ready to muck in and do whatever. Yeah, yeah. well, that sounds very, very familiar from an acting point of view as well, of course. Yeah. So, so Justin, you go to Bristol University, you mm-hmm. work alongside some of the finest... <laughs> Uh, I met you, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> generation within on their course at that time. There was about 20 of us. Um, Changed my life. Of course. Uh, so you leave Bristol and then you find yourself at Royal Welsh College, mm, yeah. postgraduate study, training as an actor, and then out into the big wide world. So you, you were acting quite a lot and quite a long time before you moved into mm. producing, directing, etc. Well, yeah, um, I, st- I still, still act. And you still act now. Um, but um, producing has kind of taken over to, to a large extent yeah. with, with the company. Yeah. So without wanting to talk too much about Insane Root, but what, mm. what kind of experiences did you have as an actor that inspired you to make the sort of work that you're doing now? Yeah, um, good question. I think I, I, d- I did some really lovely um, shows and really with some great companies. I mean, the first, the first job I had, well, on the second job, I did a voiceover for a cartoon, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, for a pilot for a cartoon um but then the first theatre job i had was with red ladder um who have got a, a really great reputation especially up in the north and their 50th anniversary year is this year and they've got something going on in leeds museum to celebrate the the history and all the productions and things so i did that a tour with them uh, a national tour that actually went back to theatre royal plymouth which was which was really nice to go home and do something there in the, in the drum, which is a fantastic place. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> it's a big and it's a big question because you kind of have to have other things in your life. And and I, and it's an interesting thing about Hannah said about not knowing and the things you can't teach at drama school. We had at Welsh College a lot of people come in, actors and other professionals, agents come and talk to us and. And that was really insightful. It's probably one of the most important things. It's about to hear from people actually in the industry rather than kind of um, just your tutors there, who a lot of them are actors or whatever, but to have a kind of a, a, a formal session about how it is <laughs> mm. right outside of this, this little cocoon, this little safe bubble that you're in. Mm. But do you... I find that you don't quite believe it. You sort of, you yes. always hear how bad it, it, or hard it is in the industry. You sort of think, nah, but it won't be like that for <laughs> me. Like that for me. Yeah, well, I, yeah. think, I think it's good to have a positive attitude. And for some people, yeah, they just go out of drama school and go straight yeah. off, they rock it off and they're, and they do, they're successful, they get a huge agent and they go into some big feature film or whatever. And that's it's kind of good and bad because, great, you've got the success, but then a couple of years down the line, you're going to be out of work and then how are you going to deal with that in a, from a mental mm perspective from an emotional because in that downtime and everyone will have it at some point mm. it's about what else do you have in your life to nourish you to keep you going and, and there's no there's no structure it's going from structure at drama school to kind of mm. nothingness so do you think it was it was that feeling of that, that aspect of the of the industry that has sort of led you into making your own work more yeah. where you've got that bit of control yeah i mean i worked with slung low uh, who are a great company up up in the up in Leeds as well, um, and did some really because they do lots of stuff outdoor, and it's kind of like being a, a kind of mobile out a radio play. So you yeah. wear headsets, and a lot of their stuff is just through city. I saw you up in up in Manchester. Yeah, and yeah. did a show at the Lowry there, um, which was which is excellent. Um, and yeah, so that that really inspired me as well, working with them. And I think it's it's engagement with an audience and that kind of intimacy that I've always missed with some work mm. I've done and that um, level of contact that you, you don't always see in, in mm. theatres and wanting to kind of, yeah, have more control, make my own work and having an idea of, of, of a real kind of strong setting and strong place, which yeah. is what led us to form this company. Um, that's, uh, well, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. 
you talked there about Red Letter and, and yeah. um, Slung Low. So, Hannah, a question for you. Um, are there any sort of landmark companies or individuals, people that you've worked with that have influenced your style or have inspired you to, to go down the path that you're on now, other than Justin, obviously? Well, obviously, Justin. Uh, <laughs> I think two of the most influential directors that I got to work with as part of my training uh, were Andrew Hilton at Shakespeare Tobacco Factory, and I got to assist on their really brilliant production of Midsummer Night's Dream. It's really, it was just so much fun. Um, but also, I worked with Toby Hulse, and I don't think you get two more different mm. approaches <laughs> to making theatre, because yeah. Andrew is it's all about text, and he's the master of it. He's extraordinary. And Toby is a wonderful clown, and he's also a wonderful writer as well. So there's two both playful but in very different ways approaches of looking at story and classics particularly so I've done um, Shakespeare with Andrew but also kind of reduced Shakespeare with Toby and that kind of gives you an irreverence for things that a lot of people hold to be very sacred Mm. and for what we do we can't be sacred to the text I guess Um, and then I mean I think I, I get influenced by everyone that I work with and I had a really interesting experience up in Bolton assisting David Thacker because it was a small cast play, but it was um, a a so-called sort of a lost Bill Norton play, and he had dramaturged it from 11 different drafts that the widow of Bill had given him, and and sort of seeing how he, he managed those relationships and how he brought that story together was really interesting, and I think... um, since I've started in the industry, I've always been more interested in the construction of uh, scripts mm. than some directors are, I think. Um, probably more of an auteur or a theatre maker, I mm. guess, mm. than someone who can sort of safely be given a script and not want to tinker with it in some way. Right. So that's that's a positive and a negative, depending on who you're working with, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so okay. Um, Jack, <laughs> have you got any questions? You've been sitting there very obediently... I'm uh, just I'm just really enjoying <laughs> listening, like hearing hearing your stories. Yeah. Um, I don't have any questions just yet. Okay. But after the break, I might. After the break. Um. Okay. Well, yeah. We'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll take a little break there. Then, when we come back, we'll be talking more with Hannah Drake and Justin Palmer from Insane Root, and we will of course go into the subject in question, Insane Root Theatre and Romeo and Juliet. Mm. We'll be back after this. Hello there, and thanks for listening to Bristol Prologue. Bristol Prologue is a brand new podcast, and Jack and I are still learning the ropes, so we'd like your feedback. Please email us at bristolprologue at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at Bristol Prologue. Okay, welcome back. I'm joined by Hannah Drake and Justin Palmer of Insane Root Theatre and my beautiful co-host and producer, Jack Drury. (laughs) Thanks for calling me beautiful well you are beautiful jack and you do a beautiful job never never <laughs> never forget it so just before the break we were almost about to delve into insane root theater the uh, process that you work on together of course as co-founders so let's start with the golden question how did that come about and you can answer <laughs> you know either one of you can, yeah. can field the question and we'll, try, we'll try and answer it together. Yeah, that would be sure. perfect. We'll chip in. That would almost be by design. Cut each other off and interrupt <laughs> each other and say no. It's quite was... classic how we do work. <laughs> like, no, shut up, Justin. Well, um, I guess I'll broaden it how and why yeah. did that come about. Well, We've touched on the why a little bit yeah. in, in the sort of yeah. first half. I think it came about, uh, well, first of all, because I saw the space. I saw this, I heard about these Redcliffe Caves because I watched this Points West um, slot on it um, and it was about this theatre company doing a show in there and I was I was kind of just astounded that this place was right in the centre of Bristol and mm. and was so exciting yeah. <laughs> I thought for the right piece of theatre the right story it could just be so dynamic and yeah. so um, well life changing um, <laughs> and feel like you're in an environment that could really um, take you to such an incredible place so I think I first mentioned it to you mm. and you were very kind enough to do a, uh interview with a, a lady that I was mentoring for Mencap. Yeah. And, and yeah. so it, not unlike this, it was kind yeah. of just having a chat about 
your career as a director and your process? Mm. And the the million dollar question yes. always comes at the end. If you could direct anything, what would it be? And um, I'd, uh, as most people uh, in the the United Kingdom education system. Uh, you know, we had to do Shakespeare at school. And we did Macbeth for GCSE. And my rather brilliant English teacher got us to storyboard the opening if we could set it anywhere we wanted to. Mm. So I'd, I'd imagined three children in a playground who were the witches. So it, from that point, I'd been interested in the idea of reinventing the, the story, the play, and not doing it in a theatre. And I mentioned this in this interview with, with you, Justin, and... It was like a little light bulb moment because you'd already been working on the script. Oh, really? So you'd already been adapting a version of Macbeth? Yeah, I thought Macbeth would work great in there, uh, mainly because I, I wanted to scare, scare the hell out <laughs> of people because it would feel like a bit of a ghost train yeah. with witches um, coming out from the from out from the um, out of nowhere, essentially from behind sort of cave walls and everything. And so yeah, we had a chat then about well. I think I asked you point about would you want to direct Macbeth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll because I was still a, oh yeah still an actor now, but I was just an act just an actor. <laughs> but that's not really true, is it? Because you directed with Gentleman Jack. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little yes. bit about because for yeah. me, having worked with the Gen- Gentleman Jack and seen them, and then gone on to Insane Root, there are a lot of similarities between the two companies. And how yeah. significant was that for you in? Were you already? Did you have that hat on still when you had this vision of the caves? Yeah, good correction, actually. So you know my career better than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Gentleman Jack was 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 very formative because that was working in Bristol with some really like-minded um, and wonderful people um, who were up for doing theatre in places that were really combined with that environment. And I had yes, and I first of all worked on. Um, Time of Athens with Philip Perry and some lovely actors. Uh, Philip was in it and directed it, and that was in the uh, St Paul's Church on Coronation Road, and that was great. And then we did, and I was then kindly um, able, offered and able to do direct Revenge's Tragedy in Bristol Beer Keller, mm. which was perfect. So because I've always I did Revenge's Tragedy at East Fifteen scenes from it, and I'd always thought this would be a perfect. Um, a perfect play to do in a, in the right setting. So for years I've been thinking about place mm. and play, and and it kind of the opportunity to do it in a in a, in a dirty scuzzy nightclub mm. in the sense of Bristol with all of these kind of um, corrupt creatures, kind of stuck sticking to the carpet as you walk through, and then the, the, kind of the feel of the smell and the taste of the place um, really kind of. And it went down very well. Mm. So, um, and that that working with Gentleman Jack and, and being able to open up those doors was uh, was the way in. Yeah, that's a. So you have this chat with Hannah then, and you yeah. pretty much point blank say, "Would you like to direct it?" Did, how how did you two know each other before? Had you worked together on anything before? We worked together a couple of times. So mm. as I mentioned before, um, I got this slot at the brewery to do a, a play, and that was in two thousand and. 10? 2010? 10. Ah, yes. Um, in the winter of. Yeah. Um, it was the winter of It was the winter of 2010. <laughs> and, and so we, we just, I just met Justin through auditioning him and did a wonderful audition. And you cast him, presumably. Cast him. Yeah. Thank yeah. goodness. Um, just all just gone a, completely wrong, <laughs> couldn't it, there and then? Just a wonderful audition, though. That just was a it. wonderful audition. After terrible that. performance. Um. <laughs> Think about Justin, he auditions very well. <laughs> I want to get him in the room. Yes. That's it. It's all over. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all downhill from um, there. But then we worked again together in 2012, I think it was. Yes, um, yes. On a, a play yes. for uh, Butterfly Psyche, which is a Bath-based company, because I was doing a placement at the Rondo Theatre. Of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a brilliant, sort of eclectic, mad venue um, that's kind of exists at counterpoint to a lot of the work that's done in Bath. It's much more alternative. It's much more kind of fringe touring. So they really champion that, which is great. And we did this play about um, fertility, mm. which was actually a really interesting subject. And um, then it was pretty much two and a bit years later that we had this conversation about Macbeth. So we kind of, every couple of years, we, we became friends, sort of socialised, and then this... The stars aligned. ...cropped up. Yeah, because yeah. we, we started in 2014 and the show didn't happen until summer of 2015. So yeah, we, 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 we in fact, we had the first conversation... 
um, in February 2014. Yeah. So it was a, a long lead up and adaptation of the script yeah. and working out. And what was it? So you you already had a sort of working relationship. Mm. And then Justin, you, you know, producer, Hannah, director, but I get the sense, obviously having worked with you and seen your work, that it's a co-helming mm-hmm. of the overall yeah. ship. Yeah. So you're co-artistic directors of the, of the company. Yeah, I suppose it works. <clears throat> well, Hannah will have an opinion on this as well. I suppose it works. <laughs> and I think how it's, how we've held it together so well is that, we work on it creatively. Um, we have privately at first with each other on what the vision is and the script and how we hone that and what we don't like, what we, mm. what we really like, why we're doing it. And the, obviously when we've got the place to add to that. Yeah. Um, and then when it gets to rehearsals time though, um, well, also through casting, we kind of, uh, Hannah takes the lead. Yeah. But... Um, Ellie Showering, who's our musical director now and also yeah. the third part of the company, and I, we, we chip in with the casting process and, and have a real opinion on that. And then when it gets to rehearsals, that's when Hannah has the lead on mm-hmm. on things artistically, creatively, and, and we do chip you, in. Do you, do you sort of look for Justin's feedback then, or is it is it kind of, thank you, Justin, because you know he's got a <laughs> ring binder full of millions of jobs that he needs to do. <laughs> uh, if I could have Justin in the room all the time, I would. Right. right. Uh, I think right. I... I really love the partnership that we have because we do, we spend hours and days, weeks sitting in one of our living rooms with a script, reading it. We alternate who reads what part and we talk about, does this stay? Do we cut this? How do we do this moment? Mm. Obviously this is all in response to having found the right site for Mm. it. That's always the first bit because loads of plays and stories we want to do, but until we find the right location for it, yeah. we don't want to start the adaptation because mm. then we're not being site-specific. We're just being kind of mm. having a fantasy. Mm. Um, and I think because of your experience as an actor um, and a director, Justin probably gives the best notes that I come across. Yeah, and yeah. because you understand what I'm looking for as well, and we, we can talk about, <laughs> Justin like... Justin just did a very sort of knowing <laughs> Heathcliff-type facial expression, just so you know. Um, yes. But, but we can kind it's of... very kind understand what's going on with people mm. through our different approaches. And I think we balance each other really well. Yeah. So um, that, that amount of preparation that you do, for me, rings true having worked with you, that there's usually a kind of a good plan and there's quite a lot of prep goes into those mm. first couple of days of rehearsals. Mm. Um, so one of the big things, obviously, about the work that you do in the sites that you do in is the amount of planning and preparation, technical aspects. And I wonder, Jack, did you have any questions about, about that? side of insane roots yeah i was just wondering with so many different spaces the red cliff caves in particular like how do you deal with the technical challenges of like amplifying sound or music or like Mm. what and also lights like how how much does the finding the place and then working out how to make it into a theater like what does that process entail well i suppose it's it's the, well, the, part, the last part of your question, making it into a theatre. We don't. Edmund Mackay. <laughs> well, yeah. That's we the we don't. The evil genius we, who does our lighting. <laughs> yes. We'll come on to them in a minute. But we 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 don't make it into a theatre. We yeah. make it into something that we keep the environment and the place. I think, and then we add in some the practicality of of what. Um, or comfort, comfort to a to a degree that can be um, dealt with um, throughout the production and for the run of the audience. Mm. So for every place, there's a there's all these different technical challenges. I mean, when we're in the vaults and the suspension bridge for Orpheus and Eurydice in 2017, that was that was some serious challenge with the with the kind of the because it's just this what we call the jetty, mm. very small. Um, width but long uh, kind of corridor um and that uh, was shared with the audience and the actors we could only get 12 audience members in to a performance of that so that was practicality wise in terms of our schedule it had a real Mm. burden uh in terms of trying to sell tickets to cover the costs but in terms of that shared space between audience and and actors and shared light and things it's big question and And Hannah as well how much of the restrictions or the opportunities that the mm. space provides you, how much does that shape your vision of the story that you're trying to tell? Hugely. 
Hugely. I mean, uh, so go back to Macbeth, and we've never used amplified sound. And I think that's it's partly artistic because we work in an environment um, where the acoustics are usually driving a lot of the sound, the yeah. musical composition. Yeah. So Orpheus was, uh, the music was written because we knew the echo within the vaults would provide certain musical kind of... Um, it's one and a half quirks. second... I think it was about like that, yeah about a second. So you could almost harmonise with yourself if you sang in there. So, so we it had, just a, had a proper echo. So you'd, yeah, oh god, yeah. You'd say hello, yeah. and then it would say it back. And not not fully like hello, hello, but you'd get a really resonant sound. Yeah, and right. with, when you you chuck a, a note in there, and then immediately you'd sing another one, they do kind of harmonise. Oh, not perfectly, wow. but kind of. You could hear the sort of tail of yeah. things that were said before. Yeah. And obviously then that's challenging when you're speaking because of clarity, but it offers different opportunities. It was very much one of the reasons we did that story in that space yeah. was the sound. And that, yeah, because you're going into the underworld and it's got that kind of otherworldly mm. god, gods of the mm. of the underworld place. And, and But then also you've got this crash of the cars, which was the yeah. cars going <laughs> over the top. And there's like where the, where the bridge links to the other part of the... Well, the the bridge links to the land as such, and it's like they usually a, do, don't they? It's yeah, a, a <laughs> yeah. Two bits of land. Strange, that isn't it? <laughs> How it all works, mm. science. Um, <laughs> so, and then that that lip was then that that was the sound, but it sounded like this kind of crash of something elsewhere, mm. and you can kind of see off into. We, we had that, of course, during Macbeth, didn't we, where we had yeah. pop concerts going on oh, yeah. from yeah. On the other side of the harbour, yeah. oh, the amount of noise. Yes. Um, so you get through, you know, Macbeth 2015, great mm. success. Macbeth 2016, bigger success. Mm. Hey, this insane Root Theatre company, they're really amazing. Mm. What, how on earth do you tackle then what comes next? And what did you learn oh, from, from those processes and what have you learned since on those shows that you've done up until, not, not including Romeo and Juliet? Learned the importance of plumbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the big challenge this kind of answers both of your questions. I think is the spaces that we've been able to use don't have infrastructure, so they don't have a bar, they don't have toilets, they don't have dressing rooms. So a big challenge for us is how do we make them safe and kind of hospitable for the actors mm. and also for the audience. And we've yeah. we've learned new techniques. Um, I mean, simple things, even like everyone in the company now gets a thermos flask. Hey. And a bottle of water. That's a great idea. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, that came um, in after Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> so, we missed that one, sorry. Yeah, never mind. Um, and, and also just trying to um, be really clear and open about what the challenges are for mm. everyone. And I think, Fanny, usually we as a company are on site, you know, mm. usually a director or director show and then piss off <laughs> but I mean we're there doing front of house yeah. as well you know there to manage it yeah, yeah. now well, I, I remember that that was a great aspect of it so so how did it um mm. how did you come up with the next idea then what what did you did you know what you were going to do had you always had plans and no then I'll ask a separate question but yeah just <laughs> Justin you, you put your hand up there uh yes <laughs> so I did put my hand up uh, well seen I I did well, I saw in Bristol 24-7 um, that they were doing these tours of, of the suspension bridge and this, this vault that had just been discovered recently, only kind of a few years ago. Yeah, I think they, they worked out it was hollow about 15 years ago, but they yeah, only got into it. Yeah, they just recently got into recently. it and they're doing these tours yeah. of this amazing space that, you know, you have to clamber yeah. down the, a ladder to get into and oh. then the side, yeah. of the side of the bridge, side of the gorge and then into the bridge. It's extraordinary. And, yeah, I just... I, luckily, the lady, uh, Laura Hilton, the wonderful Laura Hilton, that is the visitor service manager mm-hmm. at the centre, she'd seen Macbeth. So I, right. when I emailed them, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, yes, I've heard of you. I've seen Macbeth, it was great. And come and have a look around. But I don't know if it will be right for you because of the capacity yeah. and also hard hats. Yeah. But we incorporated yeah. all those things into it and made it made it work, and that's how. So, so that was an example of space. So you you only allowed one word here. So right. is it is it the space or is it the the the, the play? Space. Space. So you yeah. find the space, and then you find a play that you think will match yeah. to it. Yeah. Have you had ideas of plays or stories that you want to do, and you're thinking, well, but there's just not the right space. Yeah. To do this, to justify it, yeah, yeah. or, or okay. to, like say, 
my example to people when they ask me is, well, Hamlet, it's a Hamlet in a car park. You know, yeah. well, okay, yeah. why? Why? Yeah. Titus yeah. in a in a laundrette. Yeah. Um, I mean, these great, all, but... sound like album titles to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's interesting um, that people do say these things off the cuff. And and our most recent one, Romeo and Juliet in yeah. a swimming pool, mm. probably sounds a bit off the cuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, I, I mean, we even have people who are in the company now who are like, are they, are they, are they actually gone mad? Yeah. I don't know. But then you go to the space and it mm. makes sense. Mm. So I think we're, we're really lucky so far, but we're also very particular in when we choose spaces that they have a real identity and a presence. Yeah. And that's why we're going through all of the kind of heartache yeah. to make a show. I mean, I think that there. was similar with even with Macbeth. People mm. are going, why well, in the caves? What's that got to do with Macbeth? Well, mm. when you go in there, it feels mm. like you're in a 13th century castle. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. It's uh, so dark. So, yeah. The space and the environment is obviously a huge part of your work. Mm. Another big part of your work for me has always been the, the sound, the music. Mm. And you mentioned Ellie, Ellie showering. Mm. Um, Jack, have you got a specific question about the music? Or I mean, I've got a few questions, but... Yeah, just how did you end up working with Ellie? What was the origin mm. of that? I think like a lot of things with this company, just kind of by chance. <laughs> uh, so I, um, when we were in the middle of, of creating Macbeth, I think it was after we'd done the initial script work. So this was in 2015. Uh, I went to see Verity Standen's show, mm-hmm, and Ellie is one of the trio singers that performs in that. And she's worked with Verity for years, and Ellie is a phenomenal singer. Um, her voice is, is extraordinary and very unusually for me I watched this show and then stuck around to her, sort of see if I could chat to the performers because I, I was so affected by Loited it Loitered around <laughs> and I actually overheard Ellie saying that she was a composer as well and that kind of gave me an in to start chatting to her and I said we're doing this version of Macbeth in a cave. Do you want to have a chat about it? Did you know then that um, you wanted music to be a part of that show, or did you know, or did um, you feel that as a company that you wanted music to be a part of all of your work, or was that was that not even on the radar? At I that mean, stage? I think that's a really generous notion of how we established we were as a company. <laughs> but we didn't even have a name at that point. Yeah. But for me, as as a kind of an individual theatre maker, um, music and sound is is inherent. I think, to drama and the way that I do stuff. I think, I mean, I listen to music all the time, so it just makes sense that music is is a big part of the yeah. work that I make. And I think it can be so powerful when you give the right kind of music to a scene where it's either completely at counterpoint to what you think is happening or completely supports it, and it's mm. such a shortcut to emotion and yeah. understanding. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, I wanted to include live singing because we auditioned based on that. Um, but I, I don't think we'd thought about having an actual composer. It probably yeah. would have been me finding yeah, yeah. songs that we could learn. Um, so it was just magic to to meet Ellie, and she was totally on board. Yeah. And it turns out that she had always had an interest in kind of remaking old stories through song. She's got this beautiful version of a poem called Annabelle Lee. Um, so it was things like that that we we found we had in common and we I think the chemistry as well was really great so we had a chat and then she came on board and she was hugely instrumental I think in creating the tone of what the company makes yeah absolutely so yeah you mentioned there about Ellie and the amount of work that she adds to a show with the music so and also the sort of physical challenges of the spaces that you're in so you do ask quite a lot of your actors and you require very very good performances for holistically from your actors mm. So, Justin, you know, what is this sort of casting breakdown for an Insane Root performer? Because we, we hope to have actors listening yeah. to this and they might be wanting to work with you in the future. They might be thinking, oh, my God, that sounds like a very, very difficult job. Yeah, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's tough. Um, you have to be physically and mentally robust um, to do our shows. Um, but I think it's incredibly rewarding mm. as well. You, I mean, we we as I, when I went back, go back to earlier in the in the the show, and I was talking about when I youth theatre and that camaraderie. We 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 re, I always look for people that are bringing um, that kind of bounce or positivity into the room. And I know, did you hire me? <laughs> <laughs> well, begrudgingly, we uh, was I the sort of yin to everyone else's bouncing? <laughs> <laughs> it was a yang. <clears throat> yeah. Well, 
That's a different show. But um, yeah, no, it was it was something it, it's something about uh, people that are going to be good company members that are going to be um, interested in, in working as a team. And, and you, you build a hell of a bond, right, when you're on that, yeah. that, that team from top to bottom, everybody yes. involved. You mentioned Ellie, you mentioned Edmund, but Sarah as well, mm. obviously, is such mm. a massive part of, yeah. of the vision that you have. Yeah, Sarah think... Warren, our designer, we worked with since, since day yeah. one. Yeah, I think, like, like we said as well, we don't disappear. Mm. We, we demand as much, if not more, of ourselves. Yeah. Than we ask yeah. of other people, and yeah. I think when when you're showing that that's what you're doing, people are willing to go there with you. And the audience see you there as well, because often you're ushering yeah. and you're kind of doing the box office, and it's, yeah. it feels yeah. like you're part of an experience yeah. Yeah. more than just going to see a show. I think if you, if the rewarding parts of it is it's just you're you're going on an adventure with us, um, literally, because you're going into a place that we don't. We have thought about a lot and yeah. we, we're trying to find the challenges. We're going to make it as comfortable for you as possible. But to have that um, adventure, you're having the engagement of the audience and that contact and in, in intimacy. You don't get that, no, that first in many other jobs. site visit to the caves, I remember <clears throat> it so well. It was just like, wow, this, mm. is, this is going to be magical. Yeah. And a, um, lot, a lot of actors have described it as they almost don't need to act because they're just they're in that place. You, isn't it? They yeah. feel like they're inside the story because yeah. they're just the breath coming out you can see the breath in the yeah. in the air from it and um once once the, uh, coming out of the darkness and you can kind of feel that it's very easy to get set yourself into the emotions mm. of the story yeah and i imagine you get a lot of that from eastville park which mm. is the location yeah. eastville park pool to be precise of the latest big production romeo and juliet which yeah. is of course a much bigger scale production yeah. than the previous two or three, um, following on from the sort of scale of Macbeth. So we are in 2018, summer 2018, and Romeo and Juliet is up and running. You're, what, a couple of weeks in? Yeah, yeah two weeks in. 24 performances so far. Mm -hmm. So if this isn't really a question, but just tell us all about Romeo and Juliet, and then you can, you can really wow. go from wherever you want. I mean, presumably, let's, let's start with the, with the space. What was it about that area? Is it the part of Bristol? Is it the, the, the geography? Is it the actual site itself what were the what were the reasonings behind the swimming pool at eastfield park <laughs> um all of those interestingly i think all of the things we've done so far have sort of been central bristol uh and as you've probably gathered we we have a plan but not a very fixed plan <laughs> uh but what we've kind of started to see and if you look at patterns in in the work and stuff that we are interested in kind of the heritage of bristol yeah. and using places that have not been used before or have rarely been used before. So we got an email from Kim, who was a permaculture design student, who was aware of our work and sort of said, have you considered um, this swimming pool out in Eastville Park? Right. And we get that a lot now. People who see our work, they, they like what we do. They sort of say, have you seen this bit? Have that's you seen fantastic. that? Fantastic. And they really engage with great. what we do. And, I mean, we've never done open-air stuff. I've never directed open-air. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we thought, well, we'll go and have a look. Um, and, and yeah, you sort of, you walk in and it's, I think whenever we've found spaces that we make shows in, there's a moment when you first walk in where you go, wow, this is exciting. And you, it's, it's a bit like, you know, if you walk into a house you want to go and live in, there's something about that space that's really, you connect to. And... I think your your imagination starts to run wild, and because we're we're big fans of Shakespeare, um, that's kind of our first go to in terms of plays to put on, and we're looking at the architecture of it, and we're sort of saying, oh, but look over there, that's the balcony, mm. and and you could do this with it, and you could mm. run through there, and and I think when you start to see how a play could exist in it, that you get the idea. So you've got a sort of structural be. landscape around which you can mm. hang certain key moments. Yeah. But what about that? space in particular was it the because i know it well it's it's, it's mm. more or less the part of bristol where i grew up not too far there's a sort of obviously it's a disused abandoned mm. unloved you know but were there certain colors or textures what was the what were the kind of things that really sparked the interest yeah i mean it's got a kind of all these layers of history it's been there for over 100 years now and it's got a huge amount of kind of um so many stories have been have happened there or told there. You can just you just 
being in that place. It feels separate in a way. It's weird because it feels se- it's just metal railings that we've clad for the show, but normally you just go in and wander in, and it, it does feel like a separate part yeah, of the park or separate does, part yeah. of Bristol almost. Uh, and it's got that mishmash of man-made versus nature because they've they've in the eighties they installed all these um, flowers and trees and shrubs and everything. And it's kind of like a water, there's a pond, which is a bit a bit muddy at the moment. Mm. But it's they've tried to kind of make it into something more in keeping with the park and it's it's kind of been successful, but it's, then it's kind of been left and it's oh. dilapidated and it feels it's got that uh, Italian piazza thing as well. Yeah. And in, on a really sunny day, which we've been having a lot of recently, it feels like it could be this place where the Montagues and Capulets might hang out in this this yeah. kind of escape um teenage escape kind of area there's an edge to it yeah because of things like the graffiti Graffiti. because you hear a lot of of sirens going by i think as a place for theater i love how unpretentious it is Mm. i love the idea that that you can walk through a park and then go and see a bit of shakespeare and it's not people wearing you know ruffs and collars and and shouting loudly it's it's people having a laugh with it and, yeah, and being yeah. silly it's, and goofy it's and... got that great quality of being simultaneously in the park and secluded mm. and mm. secret at yes. the same time right it's so like it's a, a perfect garden. place for a sort yeah. of secretive love yeah. story Absolutely. hey no it's no accident it sort of <laughs> reminds me of something you might see in a documentary about what the world would look like if mankind were no longer on it and what yeah. our kind of urban spaces would become in 10 and that was very years. much an influence yeah. for, for Sarah our designer we yeah. talked about the idea that because we couldn't get away from the sirens or the graffiti, that actually, if we have a setting of any kind, and we're generally not very specific in terms of time, um, but it was a kind of alternate modern. So it's like there'd been some kind of event about 100 years ago and society had just diverged a little bit from what we feel like we know. So there's no phones, there's very little technology. Um, There's really strong societal pressures, like patriarchy, religion... And expectations on the young people, mm. and also the idea that people maybe don't live very long. Mm. Um, but that was really informed, I think, by by the space as well. So you mentioned a couple of words there that just triggered a, a thought in my mind: pressure mm. and expectation. Mm. Um, so obviously, after some some sort of really strong commercial and critical successes, um, there's pressure and there's expectation that you're going to fulfil mm. that. But also, I, I think personally, you know, when you do Romeo and Juliet there's going to be very few surprises for most people in the audience, right? Yeah. Because they know the story, they've probably seen it a few times before. What does that do to your mindset when you go into the, the planning and and kind of early thoughts yeah. process? Try not to think about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I think it's... it's. A, I think what and Hannah's done such a wonderful job with directing it is that it... If it and having watched the, the preview, um, not seen it, uh, again since then but I'm looking forward to seeing it this week again because it's been kind of changed and modified a bit and it evolves anyway because the actors yeah, will try different course. things and know it 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 always feels like it just feels very honest mm-hmm. and and simple and, and kind of we've adapted it so it that someone um, wrote a very nice little email the other day saying that it it because of our cut it made the story feel much stronger oh. that um and more understandable and I think you've just got to do the basics with it and then mm. the bigger themes come out of it. You can almost mm. do too many things and put too many things on top of it. And, and in that space, anyway, you've just got to let it, um, the location influence Inform it. And it. How people will see, especially with the light. The light is a huge thing because it's outdoor. And when the light's going and the theatre light's coming in, Edmund Kai's wonderful design coming in, you do feel like the walls are closing in yeah. because the... The light, the the roof is going, and then the dark, and then the darkness is coming in, and then everything feels like more enclosed because of that. And I mean, there's you know. there's obviously no argument that it's a very very popular, very successful play. So the the the, mm. the joy of your work yeah. is that you're not um, just you know replicating this show because you know it's going to be a success. That the, mm. the the key is to how can we make that our own? Yeah. How can we make people? Yeah. How can it be memorable? And exactly. what surprises can we? Yeah, and I think um, I I like the word you use, Justin. The idea that it feels honest, Mm. that (laughs) that in the process of making it, we're always saying, "What does this mean?" Mm. Um, And if you were a teenage girl, how would you react? And so we've got the the 
beautiful Jess Temple as our Juliet, and she has tantrums. Nice. She sort of throws herself on the floor when she can't, you know, she isn't being told what her, her lovers sort of said <laughs> to her. And, and then that can twist into the tragedy very easily because um, if you have to just imagine that this person who is your child is dead in front of you and just respond honestly, it becomes incredibly visceral. Mm. And I think because the work that we do is very up close, they don't have to... I mean, vocally in this space, it's harder because mm. you don't have a roof to bounce the sound back. Mm. So there is a sense of vocal projection, but there's more support than most open-air places. But so there's no sense of having to push a performance or or reach you know the, the cheap seat at the back because mm. everyone gets a great seat. Mm. You're really up close to it. Yeah, I, th- I think as well it's it's just every actor that we employ really understands what they're saying. Mm. Yeah, and that is yeah. a key part yeah. of it. If you're going to do yeah. Shakespeare, you're going to get found out quickly yeah. if, you, if you don't know exactly what every line you're doing is. And, and then also that 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 into that in, intimacy and being able to then shape everything around. I think there was a the wonderful comment from an audience member the other day who said. Oh yeah, I really liked all the ad libs that were in it. It felt really fresh. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. and then they said one of the lines. I was like, no, that's mm. that's Shakespeare. Mm. And they were they were shocked. Yeah. So there was something about the the kind of the liveliness and the freshness and the fun that the the guys are having with it yeah. that makes it feel really contemporary. You mentioned a little bit about the design and obviously the space. What's your take on on Romeo and Juliet as a, as a play? You know, what what are the interesting things that you want want to show, and how does it link into themes that? You know, inspire you. Why is the why is that a relevant piece of theatre to be putting on now in twenty eighteen? Well, I think um, from for for two thousand eighteen, it's it's the toxic masculinity and and how that's a a big thing at the moment with especially with, with things like Me Too and yeah, all of the things that are happening and, and all of the kind of gender debates and things like that. And we spent a while talking about casting the show and how, and and how we would do it. From a, you know, we're open to, to to changing genders for for roles or whatever, uh, and seeing how that it can it can with Shakespeare change the dynamic, but that's it can be you know, open up new new channels and, and new stories, uh, yeah. new things. But, but like, we we both felt yeah. that in in Roman Juliet, there's a there's a divide in the society between how men are treated and how they're allowed to behave versus how the female characters can, yeah. and it doesn't mean that either is stronger than the other. It's just that 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 division and that pressure is a really big part of why it's a tragedy and why it's not a comedy, I guess. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think with the... Yeah, why why the the boys, the teenage boys in it, um, end up killing each other because of just of this... this, These kind of... These ridiculous... Yeah, um, egos and rules that are set in place by the culture and... And also not having anything else to do. Yeah. They're yeah. a completely idle society. Mm. And they are, it's claustrophobic and it's, you know, they, they don't have an external enemy that they seem to be fighting. It's all internal. It's all turning on itself. And that, I mean, Brexit happened when we were doing Macbeth. And I remember the kind of the, the shock wave for the people that we were working with. And, and we would describe how there was divisions between parents and their children mm. and it feels like we have in so many different ways a divided society so i think romeo and juliet is often dismissed and i dismissed it as a poncy love story <laughs> between two teenagers who should have just you know slept on it mm. and not rushed into what they were doing text each other yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually i think in in kind of rediscovering it in putting it into this urban space the themes for me that come out are the, the the tragedy of willful ignorance and willful stupidity and that if these two families just kind of got over themselves, yeah, yeah. Um, what ha- would happen, or what does happen in the play wouldn't happen. Yeah. And what, what's um, the response been like from audiences in, in terms of those themes? Have, mm. Has that kind of been, have you felt that coming through? Have people been coming back to you with... Yeah, yeah. There's been some great feedback, and I think that a lot of it's to do with the 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 location and how that informs their their thinking on on the play and how that. Um, I mean, that, the other day, yeah. that Reese specifically said that 
when they were younger, they saw it as a love story. Yeah. And now they see it through the lens of being older and they can see all uh, that. The patriarchy and, and the yeah. set rules yeah. and also the kind of the futility of it. Yeah. The few, yeah. and, and, and the fact and you mentioned is a good question about, well, people know the story so well, but so why tell it in a way? Mm. But you need to tell these stories. Because this is it's still happening in the world. This and you're tapping into the other characters in that story's mm. perspectives as well, yeah. right? Yeah, I can yeah. see that from even just from the photographs that I've seen. Mm. And I, I haven't seen the show yet. I'm going to be coming very, very soon. Yes. I can't wait. <laughs> um, Jack, have you got any questions? Yeah, I've got quite a practical question yeah. for people who already know the play. How on earth did you manage to cut it down to, is it an hour and 40? About an hour and 40, Just, yeah. So yeah. Just for people that know the play, like, there are... And people who have been involved in the productions of it, there are bits that are maybe not essential, but, like, yes. which bits have you kind of had to get rid of and which bits do you wish you had time to do? Well, I think we're very happy with the, with the cut we've got and we've yeah. had to kind of, I think, after the final rehearsal script was made we've added in a couple of bits yeah um, uh, for the friar um a, a little things like but very minimal things are uh, i guess it's yeah. just about f- finding the connections for the actors that are playing those characters to make yeah to make to make it palatable make sure that they've got some kind of arc yeah, still. yeah. exactly we talk a lot when we're doing the edit about the idea of greatest hits mm. right. so there are certain yeah. things that you just kind of can't get rid of. As much as I yeah. wanted to cut the dagger speech in Macbeth, <laughs> I'm really glad we didn't. No. Um, so, like, I mean, the the scene we probably cut the least is the infamous balcony scene. Yeah. Because it's also the only time you really see Romeo and Juliet get mm. to be silly teenagers falling in love. And you have to invest mm. in them, otherwise what's the point of the play? Um, but I think one of the things that we do is we use music to uh, bridge story. Right. So we'll cut out a big scene where all the characters who don't know what's going on and have to find out what's going on yeah. don't... We don't see that happen in our version. Yeah, that, but the emotional yeah. story continues because we bring a song in or yeah, we do a vignette. You waste a lot of time in Shakespeare plays where they have to go then get the one character then tells the whole story yeah, yeah, of what's yeah. happening. But we'll, For all the drunk the audience, audience members back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the audience know the what's year. happened. Unless they've been asleep, yeah. but they <laughs> most of them will know what's yeah. happened. So you don't yeah. need to do that, and that's yeah. what happens. In, well, that's what we've cut out of Romeo and Juliet. And also, I think with with archaic comedy, yeah, some of it is just mm. no matter how brilliant the actors are, and no matter how mm. much they understand what they're saying, yeah, yeah. there's a limit to how much you can uh, relate to a modern audience without getting really gestural or grotesque. So it's trying to balance um, what is. What, what a modern audience needs to hear, I guess. Yeah. Well, we're rapidly <laughs> running out of time. Um, so I've got a question from a listener. <gasps> uh, you might know her. Her name's Amber. She's my wife. Oh, and, uh, yes. I, I asked her if she had any questions. And she wants to know, is there any scope for work beyond the classical realm? So a modern play or devised? Or have you got any aspirations to tackle yeah. other kinds of writing? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just how, um, again, going back, it's, it's got to be the space and what we find, um, what we find out there. We've got some, some plans and some developments and some meetings coming up that we're excited about. But it's just about, um, yeah, working out what we want to do and mm. pu- pushing ideas forward and then discussing them. Um, I mean, yeah, open to any era and any time. It's not just a classical um, I think uh, story. The, the way that we've described what we do, because I think some people will think that we only do Shakespeare, which, understandable. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I just sort of think of it as stories you know in places you don't. Mm. So that could be you know, a, a brand new modern play in Back in the Caves, for example. Um, or we could devise a play around... I mean, I'm quite keen to do um, a new version of the story of Icarus. Right. Um, don't know how, don't know where. Yeah. It's kind of... It's on on the table at some point. Um, and I think what what's quite specific about what we do is it's that, that juxtaposition and that clash of story in place and yeah 
Yeah. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, that, I think that's, that's what it is. Um, so, it's, yeah, and if if, uh, if someone out there has got a great space that none of us have ever heard of, what's, oh, the, what's the easiest way to get in touch with you to let you know? Email us, um, info at insaneroot.co.uk, and that's tree root, not the, R-O-U-T. the route to take. <laughs> yeah, roots, tree roots. Great. Well, um, yeah, be, I'm sure you, you will get emails and I'm sure you continue to get them. Mm. So, Romeo and Juliet's going very well. How do I get tickets? What time is it on? And how long is it on until? Etc. Etc. So, Romeo and Juliet runs uh, from Wednesday to Sunday every week from now until the 29th of July. And we've got two shows a day, 6 pm and 8 30 pm. Runs about an hour and 40 minutes without an interval. And to get tickets, probably the easiest thing is to go to our website, which is www.insaneroot.co.uk. And are there any special offers available that you do want to talk about? <laughs> there is. There's a, a one-mile radius ticket offer, which is called, is called resident, the resident ticket offer, and that's £10 tickets, uh, which is heavily discounted from our £22 price. Um, but you get a lot for your £22. I certainly do. And we, have, we haven't gone into mm. it, but I, I know that on your blog hannah you can read a lot more about the costs of mm. making theater we haven't haven't yeah. tackled that at all but it's such a huge <laughs> a it's almost a podcast. subject for a <laughs> Next different podcast where we could get various people in and talk just about how yeah, expensive yeah. it is to make theater um well that's a great offer and uh, i'm going to be taking it up myself because i live in the bs5 area and uh, it's fantastic that you've bought some theater out, out a bit further out of bristol mm. as you said earlier uh jack have you got any Final thoughts. I'd just like to say thank you very much for coming and being our first guest. Yes. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Um, Anything coming up that you'd like to just quickly mention that you've got in the pipeline or anything you've seen recently that you think, hey, people should go and see that? Just anything you want to share that's not insane route and not... Well, I'm going to go and see Nacho's very soon. Oh, are you? Well, uh, thank you, Justin. I heard there's some really good... Good people in and well, writing it as well. You, so. can, you can decide that for yourself. <laughs> and Hannah, any anything coming up that you want to share? Uh, if anyone's going to be up at the Edinburgh Fringe, I'm co-directing a very different kind of play uh, called Flies for Pins and Needles slash yeah. Lays on Form. With, and with we, Piers, uh, with Renner and Piers, Harry. Renner, uh, George Reedshaw and Harry Humberstone. Awesome, yeah. And we are at Pleasance to 5pm for the festival. Well, thank you so much, guys. You've been wonderful and uh, enjoy the sunshine. And depending on when you're listening to this, either the World Cup dream is still alive or it's indeed <laughs> over. Thank you very much, Justin Palmer, Hannah Drake from Insane Root Theatre. Thank you. Thank you. Bristol Prologue is produced by Jack Drury and hosted by Andrew Kingston. For all inquiries, email bristolprologue at gmail.com. And if you'd like to feature on the podcast, please email us telling us a little bit about who you are and any projects you might have coming up. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Bristol Prologue.